agnostics, long-haired weirdos, short-haired weirdos, vandals, hooligans. The government hugged the government love. The government hugged the government love. The government hugged the government love. Welcome to The Politics Guys, a place for bipartisan, rational, and civil debate on American politics and policy. I'm Michael Baranowski, a political scientist at North Kentucky University. I'm joined today by Cleveland area attorney and Republican factotum, Jay Carson. Good afternoon, Mike. Hey, Good evening, Jay. actually. Yeah, yeah evening. we're recording it's... a different time now, yeah. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm a little, I gotta say, I'm a little discombobulated here, you know, hanging out in my jammies, getting ready to do the do the show, but I, I think uh, I think I, I think this might be good. So, yeah. and you know, it's been... Gosh, a, a crazy week and a crazy Friday afternoon. But before we get to all that, I wanted to thank our newest supporters. And we have three new Patreon monthly supporters, and that's Luke, Jonathan, and Joel. And also, we have a PayPal supporter all the way from Seoul, South Korea, and that is Brian. So, wow. Yeah. Thank so, you, Brian. Thank, thank all of you. I, I, Jay, I think I told you a little while ago, we actually have listeners in 167 countries, if you can believe that. That's, That's uh, crazy. I didn't even know there were 167 You know, there you go. Countries. You know, we got to work on the other, I think there are like 195. So we have a few more to work on, but uh, maybe maybe in 2019, the rest of the we're year. In all, all the best countries. Yeah, all exactly. the very best countries. <laughs> but of course, you know, when you become a monthly sustaining supporter, you get more than this shout out. There's a whole bunch of stuff we have for you, like our, our bonus show, our new quick take show. And to check all that out... You can just go to patreon.com slash politicsguys, or you can go to politicsguys.com slash support. So with that out of the way, Jay, I think we are ready to have at it. Yeah, thank you. And I'm, I'm, uh, I'm running the show uh, today, so um, you'll bear with me in our first story because this is sort of late breaking news and we typically don't do late breaking news. Um, we usually do the news from the day or two before where we have a chance to think about it. But it's sort of a big story in that uh, Federal Reserve Chairman Joel Powell, uh, Jerome Powell gave his a forceful warning about the risks to the U.S. economy uh, relating to the escalating trade war. Uh, Mr. Powell made a speech today uh, signaling that the Fed would follow a rate cut uh, with an additional reduction soon, but he did not uh, give a put a number on it, which is sort of understandable. Understandable, um, and uh, he he indicated that uh, the Fed's tools were not necessarily suited to dealing with uh, the fallout from a trade war. Um, uh, markets had been falling; they started to recover some, uh, and then um, uh, <laughs> yeah. Donald Trump responded um, with with a uh, tweet saying, as usual, the Fed did nothing. That's all caps. Uh, it is incredible that they can speak without knowing or asking what I'm doing. He wrote, my only question is, who is our bigger enemy, Jay Powell uh, or Chairman Z? Uh, so uh, after that, the markets did not do so well and, yeah. and tumbled down for about, uh, about 600 points. So, uh, so often listeners ask, uh, Mike, you, you know that, you know, what, what could Trump do to really really upset me what 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 would you know what what uh at what point does does uh, jay turn his back on trump and first of all i think it's we're starting with the presumption that i'm i'm with trump on on everything uh but um this is pretty close to it this is uh, uh the the trade war um is being is 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 pretty destructive um i understand the rationale i guess uh but uh, this does not seem to be the type of, uh, he's, he's escalating and trying to, oh gosh, what are some of the other pieces in here? Um, well, you know, he, uh, he announced, uh, he tweeted a tariff increase. Right. And, yeah. Tariff increase. 
And, and then he and then he tweeted that, uh, oh, uh, our great American companies are hereby ordered to immediately start looking for an alternative to China, including bringing your companies home, all caps, and making your products in the USA. And as the uh, head of the Chamber of Commerce pointed out, um, the president can't actually. Well, he can tweet that, but it actually has no force. It's, it's in not law. actually an order. Yeah, <laughs> you can't. It doesn't really work that way. Yeah. Um, and then, Jay, <laughs> and then after after his comments clearly make the stock market tumble, it ended up being over six. It ended up being six hundred twenty three points, which is a which is a destruction of I don't know an awful lot of value. I think I saw two point three percent of the value of the Dow if I got the last figures right. Then right. then he decides to make a joke about it, and that's being you know the result of Seth Moulton uh, withdrawing from the from the presidential race and. I don't that, know. That is that that's a little funny, but yeah. But but you know, <laughs> if you're president of the United States, do you make jokes about the the Dow dropping over 600 points? I, I think not. I I think you know this is a man who a self-proclaimed stable genius who stable genius. clearly has acted in such a way that has caused significant economic harm. You know, I mean, I yeah. and and I, if you if you look at what Powell said, if you listen to what Powell said. It was all reasonable, rational stuff. I mean, he said, well, me, we will Paul cut Powell's rates. statement would seem to be a very pro-Trumpian. Yeah. It would it seem to me that's what Trump would have been waiting for. Exactly. Hopefully. Exactly. Yeah. So, I mean, and then, you know, comments like, we don't need China, and frankly, we'd be better oh, off without yes, the, them. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, the, that was the other comment I was going to mention. And um, that, that might have been true in 1950 or 1960, maybe, but that doesn't reflect the modern world and the fact that, you know, uh, China's economic growth far outpaces ours, and they're the second largest economy in the world. We we do need them, and we wouldn't be far better off without them. Those statements are just flat out. Those that that statement is it makes if you like your doctor, you can keep your doctor look like look like small beans. Yeah. Well, it, it, there's there's a couple things that that cross my mind. First first and foremost, I think you and I uh, have always agreed, at least since we started this show, uh, on on trade policy and tariffs and protectionism and so forth. Yeah. Uh, that uh, they are, as the presidents would say, very bad. Uh, he wouldn't say those are the words he would use to describe things that he, he doesn't like. But um, uh, I think that they're, yeah, they're damaging to the economy uh, of, of everyone. Um, you know, since, you know, lately that there's been more the Trumpian idea of, oh, this trade war is, it's diff it's not just the sort of protectionism he campaigned on, but rather it is a means to an end uh, to get China to uh, come back to the table and to get rid of some of the uh, what what I think you and I would also agree on are improper unfair trade practices, particularly as it regards to intellectual property. Um, and and yeah, my departure is is that look, this wouldn't be the means that I would use. Um, uh, and and maybe it works. Uh, we'll see. But so far it. It it doesn't look like it's working. At least it doesn't look as of as of this evening. It doesn't appear to be working. Um, Trade wars are not good and easy to win. I think yeah. we can all but, agree. But here that. here's the here here is the to the extent silver lining, and this is something that sort of Powell pointed out, which sort of uh, I guess antagonized Trump <laughs> to make those statements. Um, but. Uh, and perhaps Powell should have should have seen a comment and should have kept his mouth shut yeah. at uh, at saying we're going to cut rates. But um, trade wars are are not easy to win. But unlike other wars, they're they're easy to get out of. Yes, good right? point. Yeah, yeah, they're easy to call off. And and as Powell pointed out, sort of look the the reason, and I think this is you know something as 
I'm I take hope in is that um, the damage that's being done to our, our economy, the slowdown that we we've we've suffered over the last quarter uh, compared to the prior quarter has all been self-inflicted. Uh, it has been self-inflicted uh, through these these tariffs. Um, and it's it's one of these. At some point, all you need to do is say stop. But it's it's when are we going to do that? And and I, I understand maybe there's there's the argument that you have to have some pain. And you have to show the Chinese we're willing uh, to absorb more pain than they are. Um, we'll see. Yeah. And you and I have also had the, the the conversation about it's one thing. It's it's a different demographic or a different uh, a different dynamic. I should say, when when you are President Xi, who has more or less uh, total control over the country, versus a liberal democracy, um, where, where and a free economy where where you don't. Mm-hmm. And I think, so, I mean, even if you agree with the strategy and broad strokes, and I think you you can make a case for it. It's maybe not the most convincing case, but it's a it's a rational case. But even if you agree with that overall strategy, the implementation has been awful. Yeah, well, and it's it's sort of the the idea is I would think with the strategy is is there are plans and you kind of ratchet it up and ratchet <laughs> yeah. it down and there's there's sort of a a, a sense to it. Um, uh, whereas uh, again, this is well, the Fed announced it's going to cut rates and we're going to slap tariffs on China. I you know it just sort of it, it's discombobulating. Um, there, there's another piece though that that's involved that no one's mentioned and that's uh, Hong Kong. Mm-hmm. Sure. Um, and I, I, you know, I, I don't know how that's going to play. I was, you know, obviously no one knows how it's going to play out, but um, that's a that's a fascinating sort of other piece in it. And I know some Republicans, um, your friend Mitch McConnell uh, among them, have been critical of, of President Trump for not being uh, more more forthright, more forthcoming um, in his defense of the time uh, or the uh, Hong Kong protesters. Uh, and, and I, I think other, other conservatives have, have also sort of taken him to task on that, that, uh, we ought to be pretty clear on, on where we stand and whose side we're on, uh, in that, that the, the, the people of Hong Kong, uh, are, are fighting for rights that we hold. I mean, they're very much the, the same rights that, that, um, uh, our founding fathers fought for, uh, particularly not being extradited to a, uh, you know, what is a, a, well, no, it's not a technically a foreign country, nor is it really a right. foreign country, but it, it extradited to a different jurisdiction uh, to stand trial. Um, so, I, I, I mean, I, I think it, it bears to be seen what what happens there, um, because I think that the, the Hong Kong protest movement uh, has lasted longer and is is growing and is more powerful than a lot of people expected. It's certainly more than, than I, I had expected. But uh, yeah, Mitch, Mitch McConnell wrote, compared it to the um, uh, the 1956 uh, Hungarian uprising, uh, the Prague Spring of '68, uh, and then of of, of course uh, Tiananmen Square, um, uh, all of which uh, you know we were we were vocal, um, maybe not as vocal as we could have been or like to have been, um, but at least gave lip service to uh, uh, to those protesters. You know, the, the, it just comes back for me to the presidency is not a job for an amateur. Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and that's what we got in the White House. We got an amateur. But, uh, mm. but, but of course, that, you know, we were, we were already going to talk about inflammatory Trump tweets that had, that had an effect, you know, further than just the, the 
blogosphere, the Twitter sphere, whatever sphere it is exactly. And that kind of leads us right into the, the, the kind of a related story, right? Yeah, well, I, I was going to actually talk about immigration next. <laughs> you want to. Well, you know, I, I just think here, here, here's my point is, is, is yeah. I think, you know, I, when you were talking about the, when you were talking about the protests, I was thinking, yeah, sure. You know, it's uh, those protesters we want to support, but I guess if you're a Palestinian protester, it's a different thing and which kind of is a kind of a segue into the, uh, well, the segue I'll, I will skip. And then, yeah, so the, no, the, um, this is what I was going to moving to the, um, uh, he said what, uh, portion of the show. <laughs> um, yeah. Uh, on Tuesday, uh, president Trump had tweeted, uh, that, um, I think that, and I'm, I'm quoting, uh, any Jewish people that vote for uh, a Democrat, I think that shows either a total lack of knowledge or great disloyalty. Ooh, that word. Uh, were yeah. his were his his words in the tweet, and and he was doing that, of course, as a a response to uh, the controversy that has been going on over Representative uh, Talib and Elon Omar, uh, their planned trip to Israel, then their canceled trip to Israel, and then maybe talking about. Uh, limited trip to Israel, uh, and and so forth. But um, so he made those statements and was then, of course, immediately accused of of making anti-Semitic comments. I'm I'm not sure it's anti-Semitic. I think it's I think it's asinine. Um, yeah, we but, can agree on that. Uh-huh. Yeah, but yeah. I, but I don't know, I don't know that it, it's it's anti-Semitic. Um, I'm not sure because I think the the thing is, what does he mean by disloyalty? The typical anti-Semitic trope uh, is is that. Uh, you know, Jews, uh, American Jews would somehow be more loyal to Israel yeah. than they would divided be divided loyalty, States. that sort of thing. Yeah, yeah. which you know, that's the, that's the kind of thing that that Elon Omar has said that is criticized. Um, so I, I, I again, it, it, I'm not sure what he's was trying to get at by that. I mean, I think what he's trying to say is that that uh, American Jews ought to be more loyal to Israel, uh, and they're they're not being loyal enough to to. Yeah. Uh, or to their people. Um, now, uh, again, I, I'm not sure that, again, it's, it's his place to say that, uh, to, to say where, where was one's. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I mean, you know, the anti-Semitic thing, I, I feel like when it comes to a lot of what Trump is anti, I think it all kind of is subsumed under the Donald Trump is anti anyone who gets in Donald Trump's way. And that's sort of, that's his, that's his North star basically. And so if you, if you express your fealty to him, he loves you. It doesn't matter what color race or orientation you are. I don't think, but if you don't, then you're nasty or you're, you know, something else and so forth. And so I think that's how he sees the world. And so I think he's actually almost too self-involved and too narcissistic to be anti-Semitic in a weird way, though he might be sort of indirectly anti-Semitic, I guess. Well, I, I mean, I, I think, I mean, you, uh, Trump can be accused of a whole lot of things, I, but I think anti-Semitism is a, is a tough one. I mean, given yeah. that given uh, other, yeah, Jared, Jared yeah. Kushner's yeah. prominent role, um, his grandchildren are, are Jewish, being raised Jewish. Uh, he has shown uh, great support for uh, the, the country of Israel, which is, uh, you can say, well, that doesn't prove he's not anti-Semitic. Well, but but yeah, it's a most anti-Semites are, are not particularly supportive of, of the is, Israeli state. So um, I think, yeah, there's lots of stuff that, that can be laid on Trump, but that's sort of a tough one, I think. But, you um, know, but, 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 and then he, but I still stand by it. It's sort of an asinine yeah, statement. Well, to, yeah, well, we can, we can totally agree on that. But then he, he retweets this thing from uh, Wayne Allen Root, who I've never heard of, but apparently he's a Jewish guy who was a, became an evangelical Christian, I guess. And uh, when he had the tweet was president Trump is 
the greatest president for Jews and for Israel in the history of the world, not just America. Wow. The Jewish people in Israel love him like he's the king of Israel. They love him like he is the second coming of God. Um, yeah. And that, that's you know, high praise. Yeah. You know, <laughs> that's probably not the sort of thing you retweet, I, I don't think. But, uh, but oh, I, no, come on, you got to retweet something like that. If someone if someone says you're, you're the king, you're the second coming of God, of course oh, you got to retweet that. Wildly insulting. But anyway, um, but, but yeah, I mean, the strategy here, pulling back from this, and here's here's what I think is the, you know, the non sort of ridiculous part of it, or is that obviously what Trump is trying to do is to paint the most anti-Israel voices in the Democratic Party as the mainstream of the Democratic Party because he wants to siphon off some Jewish votes. I mean, Correct. right. Yeah. I mean, in, in 2016, 71% of Jewish voters went to Trump, uh, sorry, to Clinton for 23 for Trump. Uh, Gallup had a poll in 2018, had Trump's approval at 26% among Jewish Americans, which just goes to show you that this is not a single issue voter constituency. Right. And, but, but actually that, that number is probably fairly typical for most any Republican candidate. Yeah, I wouldn't. Well, I wouldn't be surprised exactly because of yeah. that. And so I think that Donald Trump probably already has most of the Jewish votes he's likely to get. And those are from the most kind of orthodox Israel focused Jewish yeah. voters. But and so to me, it's just kind of typical Trump trying to divide folks. And, and you know, I don't think his his argument that this is a democratic position is is a mainstream position is any more true than saying that say Steve King's views on abortion and immigration are a fair representation of the GOP as a whole you know it's a, it's that kind of win by divide and conquer sort of thing that we've seen from Donald Trump as a as a you know a characteristic of his entire political life and and I think and I think you're right I'm not going to disagree with you on that I think there's, there's two other pieces to this one is uh, Trump is sort of doing with uh, anti-Semitism uh, what what the left and Democratic Party has done with racism for for years with Republicans, right? And that is to make moderate voters feel perhaps uncomfortable about supporting um, those candidates. Sure. So I mean, I, I think it's it's there are there are those swing voters, and again, sort of the suburban women uh, in in sort of moderate districts. Who might be like, yeah, I'm not, I'm not crazy about being in the same party as uh, uh, Talib or Elon Omar, right? Just as, just as, uh, uh, you know, they they would be recoil from from a racism. I think that's that's the same same. So I think it, ser it serves that purpose too, and maybe even more so than trying to pick up uh, additional Jewish votes, right? Because I think you, yeah. I think you're probably oh, right. Yeah. That's probably that that number is what it is, and it's going to move a little bit, but it's not going to move. Yeah significantly um at least from from a as you know presidential electoral map right you know i mean right yeah yeah absolutely absolutely um so i think that's uh, yeah but but i i mean i think there is a sort of a a parallel here in that um it's it's often this is i mean i'm thinking back to joe biden's um statement to the naacp about Republicans, if Republicans are elected to Congress, they're all going to have you, they're going to have you all back in chains. Right. Right. Now, is 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 this saying is, is saying if you're Jewish and you're voting Democrat, uh, you're being disloyal to Israel. Sure. Uh, how much worse is that than saying uh, if you are not um, if voting, if you vote Republican, you're essentially right. being voting for, for slavery. Sure. 
Or, you know, if Obama gets elected, they're going to take your guns. I mean, whatever. I mean, sure, it's this exaggeration. Well, no, for- no, and it, it's it, I mean, it's different than, than guns, I think, because we're talking about the idea of a that a, a group of voters would have a particular race or uh, a loyalty to their, to okay, their, yeah, their race sense. or their or their um, ethnicity. Sure. If sure. you will, yeah. as opposed okay. to as opposed to a policy issue. Yeah, in that sense, you're right. It is it is is a different kind of thing. So uh, so yeah, absolutely. But it is, uh, like I said, I I try my best to not get too sucked into the uh, the tweets of the president. But when they have implications that seem to go past Twitter, then I think it's just something we have to talk about. You know. The, yeah. So. Well, and obviously the 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 stuff with the market, I think, is is yeah. much broader than the 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 goofy. Um, yeah. Uh, you know, other stuff, which which is, again, just sort of the, you know, guess what he said this time. And we'll have forgotten about that by next week because he will have said something else. Sure. Um, equally inflammatory or yeah. ridiculous. Um, but uh, so moving on to other actual uh, sort of policy news. Great. Uh, and this was going to be our my first story uh, was that the Trump administration has moved to uh, extend uh, the detention of uh, migrant families uh, through a new set of rules uh, that would essentially um, undo the the Flores settlement of of 1997. Uh, right now, there is and there was the Flores settlement in 1997, and then there was an, a, a, another decision uh, later during the Obama administration, uh, where the court, which supervises uh, Flores, uh, said that children cannot be held longer than 20 days. Um, which has led to some of our our issues right now of well, who goes where and what what can what can you do? Yeah. Um, so at this point, the, the proposal uh, would still have to get uh, approval from the judge who's oversees the settlement, which my sense is is unlikely. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> uh, and there will be court challenges, and then it's at th- that point, then you still go through the the rulemaking process. Um, so there's this is you know certainly a long way to go. Um, but I want to get your thoughts on, on this just because two things, there's, there's, I think an interesting procedural issue that, that we don't often talk about, but that is sort of this, uh, uh, governance policymaking, uh, by consent decree, by, by settlements. Um, and I wanted to get your thoughts on that because this is, this is sort of a, a weird area because because I, I think we can agree that right now our immigration policy, particularly as it uh, applies to asylum seekers, um, is is broken. Yeah. Right? I mean, we, they they have to come in, and well, we can detain them, but not really, and we can only detain them with kids for so long. Um, the the administration has pointed out uh, that you know the one of the goals of this is to stop people or or stop discourage migrants from coming here with families and with children. Um, there was a Wall Street Journal uh, report uh, a week or so ago that talked about Guatemalan smugglers who are offering discounts if you bring your kids. And and to get rid of this perception that you have a better uh, uh, offing, a, a you're less likely to be detained and will be detained in a shorter period if you come with your kids or somebody's kids. Um, and, and I think that's, that's the goal of this, uh, policy. And again, it's, yeah. it's not going to happen anytime soon. Um, and, but it's, it's the strange thing if we have to go through this, this court, uh, situation where it is a court essentially, uh, making, making immigration yeah. policy. Yeah. 
Well, you know, I, and, and I agree with you that immigration policy shouldn't be made through consent decree. We would like to see, uh, I think we'd both like to see Congress act on this and not, not uh, consent decree or administrative fiat or what have you. I mean, that's been a, that's right. been a common theme and something we've agreed upon, you know, on for a, a long time. Um, you know, I found it interesting that DHS in its press release on this, they called it, uh, they called, they called this new rule uh, uh, designed to implement and fulfill its obligations under the Flores settlement. I thought, wow. <laughs> yeah, okay, that's uh, that's new speak, I guess, George Orwell, you know, but uh, I mean, it's not, the judge, Judge G isn't going to let this go. She's already said twice, I believe, that uh, you can't, uh, you can't treat them worse to stop them from coming, basically. You know, that's not going to fly. You can't, and so... Uh, what is, is this, is this treating worse, though? I guess that that's the question. I mean... Well, if you, if you they would talk about a new type of, of detention, I, I suppose. Uh, but well, I mean, also, while while they talk a lot about in the actual rule about uh, enhancing standards, one thing they do is, of course, they do away with the 20 day thing. So you can be held for for, for longer. They said they, they'd like to make it around 60 days, but they could hold them from longer, actually, under the actual rule. And not only that, but under the Flores settlement, there was a requirement that uh, at, that the detention facilities be certified by an appropriate state agency. Right. And, and this would be certified by yeah. Homeland Security. Yeah, they're going to certify their own thing. Yeah, it looks good to us, you know, yeah. basically. So, yeah, I agree with you in terms of what they're trying to do, but that's not going to be enough and it shouldn't be enough to overturn this agreement because it it just it, it totally is not within the uh, it, it's certainly not fulfilling its obligations under the Flores settlement. That's just that's just ridiculous. And so, you know, it seems to me that uh, a legal and much better, in my view, sort of approach would be to stick what's permissible under Flores and really increase funding to alternatives to detention. You know, we talked about this. I've talked about it before, like monitoring devices and things like mm-hmm. that and so forth. And, and you know, it, it's true that a lot of the people who apply for asylum under our current definition aren't entitled to get it. But we also right. know I think the, the numbers I, I saw, it's something like 13 percent. Yeah. So I mean, it, it, yeah, it's a small it's a small amount. And and now under uh, under uh, a different administration, that percentage might be higher. I expect it would be. But still, it, it's fair to say that. As we currently define asylum, it's a stretch to say that the majority of the people who are looking for it are really qualify for yeah. it. So yeah. it seems to me like right now, asylum seekers don't qualify for a work permit unless they're, either their case has been resolved or they go 180 days without a resolution. And to me, that's nuts given our current environment. I'd like to see them get temporary work permits. I mean, for all adult asylum seekers who are released, along with a program where the government would work with the private sector to sort of coordinate employment, because that way they're part of the legal economy. It's much easier to keep track of them, which sounds like a good thing. And also it helps them out, which is also a good thing because, I mean, who are we kidding? Many of these asylum workers are already working in the underground, sure. untaxed economy. So I, I, that that's my I, take. I guess my question then, though, is, is well, what do you do with the 87% uh, that do not receive asylum once that denial takes place? Well, then they have to, I mean, yeah, if, if you apply for asylum and you don't qualify under the meaning of the term, then you have to be deported. I mean, that, that yeah. to me is, is pretty straightforward. Now, I would like to see... But, but clearly there's going, there, there is a, a much different political dynamic to say we want to deport someone who has 
been denied asylum, but they've been here working. They're doing this. So come sure. on, can't they? I mean, there and as as there were ICE protests, uh, you know, several weeks ago, um, uh, and uh, yeah. I, so I, I mean, I, I think I think that's that's an issue. And there's all there is also the issue of um, when this is this is fraught with with um, how you do the numbers and how do you do do the accounting. But of who shows up for uh, their immigration proceedings and and who doesn't, um, and we could go a whole lot in there. And I'll tell you the the um, Homeland Security had put the number saying, well, ninety percent don't show. Uh, that ninety percent isn't really accurate, except for if you're talking about a subset of uh, what's called the the rocket docket. It's a new new program that they put in ten cities, uh, and and it's it's only been in effect mostly this year. Uh, so if you're looking at, at those numbers, um, that 90% is correct. If you're looking at the broader numbers, the best thing that I found, um, this was through the Washington Post, and it was the Justice Department's numbers, uh, were that uh, 44% showed up to all of their proceedings. Um, uh, there was also a study by, uh, I want to say Rutgers? Oh, somewhere in New Jersey. Um, but that, that said close to 90% do show up. Uh, and, and a lot of it, the devil is in the details sure, is what sure. you count as showing up and when you count uh, closed cases and and open cases. And if you're counting all immigration cases or just asylum and, and so forth. Um, but I think it's not an unreasonable assumption to say there there is a, a not insignificant number of people who might just not yeah. show up or yeah. show up. And that's why I think it's important to try to integrate these people into the legal above ground economy and system so that we can change that. Because I, I agree that, you know, we would want to see closer to that 90% plus showing up, but, but you know, really we're talking, no matter what we're talking about here, we're talking about band-aids. I mean, yeah. because until well, Congress but, acts on this, that's all we're going to get essentially. But let me, I'm going to throw out one more question to you just, just to, just to screw with you. Um, <laughs> If you know, if someone tells you, um, hey, you got a court hearing next week, and I uh, say, oh, well, how, how's it looking? What are my odds? Right. Well, uh, 13% chance uh, you're going to get it, probably less. Um, would you show up? Right. No, I mean, yeah. I mean, I, I totally understand what you're saying, which is why this is at best a Band-Aid, and we're going to have a problem with a not insignificant number of people showing up for exactly that reason. I mean, I would favor changing the immigration laws and the asylum rules so that we could legitimately, under the law, the meaning of the term, take in the vast majority of these people who I think are fleeing just awful conditions. And I would consider that proper grounds for asylum. But under the current law, as it's written, in my understanding, that's sort of a that's sort of a legal stretch, to say the right, least. Right. I mean, the asylum is is open for people who are fleeing essentially persecution from the government for their political beliefs, religious beliefs, their race or ethnicity, uh, or are fleeing a, a war, natural disaster. There's it's a right. Yeah. It's it's not just. Um, economic conditions here are bad. Crime yeah. here is bad. That kind of thing, and that that may well be true. Um, but that's that's what the statute says. Yeah, so. yeah. And so I, I'd like to. I just want to make that clear. I would like to see that statute change. But again, this would have to happen through Congress, not through anything. Either President Trump, who certainly wouldn't do it, or even a Democratic president would 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 do. Yeah. Yeah.
So, well, moving on, um, you know, usually you ask like how I'm doing and I, I always struggle to come up with something clever. And I was, today I was going to say, I was, I am uh, more disappointed than a Greenland real estate broker. <laughs> um, uh, that uh, President Trump uh, had sort of floated the idea of purchasing uh, the island of Greenland, uh, which is a territory of Denmark, uh, from from the Danes, um, and was was rebuffed, uh, which which led then to <laughs> a further rebuff from um, uh, yeah. Trump. Uh, uh, Prime Minister uh, Meta uh, Frederiksen uh, called it an absurd uh, discussion. Um, to which Trump responded, uh, hey, you don't say that uh, about the United States, taking it sort of as, look, I'm, he's calling the United States absurd, um, and then called for all, called off a, a visit to, uh, uh, to, <laughs> to Denmark. So it's, it's been a, a uh, you know, but I think it's, it's one of those just fun stories, you know, because gosh, this when's the last time we bought a big piece of real estate yeah. and, and who better to buy a big piece of real estate? I mean, if, you know what I mean? If you, if you hired Donald Trump to do one thing, um, uh, you'd think this would be it. Well, um, you know, but you would think that be, Donald Trump being a real estate guy, he would know that number one, we don't really buy land from other countries anymore. And leases are much more the thing. And I think you can make a good case that leases make a lot more sense because what we really want here, we want navigation. We want military installations, right. potentially we want mineral, mineral rights. So I don't and think, casinos. well, you know, but, but, <laughs> but you know, I don't think, I think you can make a case that say that, well, you know, some sort of a three-party agreement with Greenland and Denmark about, you know, access, infrastructure development, that sort of thing that makes, that potentially makes a lot of sense, especially since China is becoming a lot more interested in that, uh, in that Arctic region, but to just come out and say, Hey, maybe we'll buy Greenland that that is, that is absurd. And it just, well, keep in mind, it didn't come out like it was, it was sort of the, there was back channel that, Hey, this has been discussed. And Trump said, yeah, we talked about it, but it's not our number one priority. Uh, at which point then the, uh, the, the Danish prime minister, uh, stepped in. And, and in some ways I, I, I will defend sort of the Trumpian response here, or at least that there, there's sort of this Trump effect that he has on, on so many people, uh, to make them sort of act their worst. Um, and, and for example, as, as he pointed out, you know, if the prime minister had just said, you know, no, thanks, we're not interested. Um, that would have been one thing, but to say, uh, is absurd that he took offense to that. Um, uh, I, I, again, I, I think there might have been a better way to say it. Uh, but if you're but, Trump, you absolutely know that's what they're going to say. Well, yeah, so but here, yeah, the larger point to me is we actually do have some serious strategic interests. Oh, and oh he is, I agree. Yeah. And he is shooting them in the he is shooting us in the foot by by conducting God. Do I even call it diplomacy in this ham handed way? Because it's going to make it even harder to make any kind of agreement if we wanted to do that now. So, so he. I, I think the serious uh, security reasons are, are going to come to the top eventually, right? I mean, if if we want it bad enough, uh, we'll we'll make a deal. And but why make it harder? Um, you know, I mean, yeah. But and you know, there's this term "nasty" that he uses. I mean, he uses it for women. He called this nasty, but he uses it for for men too. And and it's you know, it's a very unusual term in politics, and I I don't actually hear it much anywhere else either and you know i mean it it has that idea of disgusting and offensive and that sort of thing and of course donald trump is a well-known germaphobe and so mm. 
it got me to thinking. There's a, a, a psychologist, Jonathan Haidt, who has this thing called moral foundations theory, which right, has right, right, you know, right. so these five yes. moral foundations. And Conservatives are more prone to disgust. Yes, sanctity yes, degradation is, the, yes. is one of them. And I thought, you know, so this is kind of a signal, even if he doesn't realize, because I just think he's naturally that way, but that plays much better on the right than it would on the left, certainly. And so that but see I, I don't I interpret nasty as just being kind of mean, like just mean spirited, right? I don't I don't interpret it as a hmm. you know, like, oh that's that's nasty gross kind of thing. And maybe that's just me. Maybe. I don't know. I, I kinda I thought about it and you know, well when I think about it, I just generally just think about the Janet Jackson song. But if I can get past right. that, you know, um I, and I just decided to just to check, look up, you know, look it up. You should and, play that. At, you should play that at like campaign rallies. Oh, he is nasty, that's <laughs> for sure. But but you know, it's just it's just that personalization of that. Why, why do you need to call somebody nasty? Well, you you don't, and ideally, you don't call the head of state of another country nasty. You know, you just no. you're you're a big no, enough no, person. Usually, say that the head of state of another country's suggestion is absurd. Yeah, but but one if, of your allies, right? If, I mean, the, yeah. if the head of state of another country, a much smaller and less powerful country, says something, you are are big enough and not so thin-skinned where you just let it basically roll off your back and don't let it bother you. But that's our, you know, the, the soul of a six-year-old and our president can't allow that to happen. Yeah. Well, I, you know, here's, and this is a question, uh, I guess, what I'll ask about both the, the tweet and the, uh, the Denmark thing. But setting aside the, the, the merits of it, uh, of, of both of them, you know, how does it play politically? And I think in both cases, I, I don't think it does does him any any particular harm nah, i no nah, so not at all so so anyway well moving on to to another this is more of a, a policy issue is that uh what i, I was going to mention we have the, the facts about greenland there are fifty six thousand inhabitants on the uh island of greenland very small uh, very small and and the primary industries are, are fishing and some some mining and and industries relating to that um but they're gaining more ground because of the retreat of the the glacier yes. uh through the climate 80, change 80, it's not happening 80 percent yeah. 80 percent <laughs> of um uh the the country is or the, the island is uh covered in ice uh for most most all the year so yeah, yeah it's not exactly a, a tourist hot spot certainly yeah well, not yet not, not yet. yet not yet yeah so, well, moving uh, on, I guess is our our last story is is the uh, Trump policy relating to Title Ten funds uh, and Planned Parenthood. Uh, the administration uh, announced a a new policy, uh, and this has been sort of in in the works and discussion for for quite a while, uh, whereby uh, recipients of Title Ten funds, these are uh, healthcare funds essentially, uh, would not be, uh, allowed to refer patients, uh, for abortions or they couldn't have abortion procedures on their premises. It would have to be a separate, uh, separate facility, but you can't refer them to go to that facility. Um, and Planned Parenthood, uh, nationally has said, we are now opting out of the title 10 funds, um, and, and we'll go it alone. Um, title 10 represents about 10% of uh, Planned Parenthood's budget. Um, and this is, uh, you know, those, they're saying they're going to make it up with, um, you know, private funding. So I, you know, to, to me, I'm, I'm actually, I don't know how you feel about this, Mike, but I think this is, well, everybody sort of gets what they want. I would think, well, Planned Parenthood would want more money with no strings attached. Um, 
but sure. there's there's a certain freedom if you're going to go at your own then you can do whatever you want well you you know i i mean planned parenthood's been getting this title 10 money since the program started in 1970 under the nixon administration and i just thought to myself that was my kind of republican on social issues but uh, <laughs> that 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 aside it's a loss of i think around 60 million dollars annually right. which is you know not that that's a that's a good amount of money certainly and yeah. uh Maybe they can make it all up. I certainly hope they can. And just the argument, right, is that it's a, a gag rule. It's it's really sort of a half of a gag order in a sense because they can mention abortion. The right. organizations that receive child, they can mention abortion as an option. And you they can get an abortion. Well, Where can know, I get at one? At least that's when you're real. Well, <laughs> yeah. well, you know, they can even do more than that because they can provide a referral list that actually has facilities or doctors that provide abortions, but they can't in- indicate in any way which facilities those are. And also, abortion providing facilities can't be a majority of any list. So you can't give them a list of, of three and have, you know, all of them be abortion providing, basically, wink, wink, nudge, nudge kind of thing. So, but I guess, you know, Planned Parenthood uh, and other organizations are suing, uh, but a federal appeals court is allowing the change to take a, the, this change to take effect while the cases are pending. And it makes sense to me. Uh, no irreparable. Uh, well, yeah, exactly. Because I guess, presumably, women who are willing to make a bunch of phone calls can still get access to abortion services. And that's certainly an inconvenience. It doesn't constitute an irreparable harm, I guess. And that's kind of how I see it. So. So, yeah, I, I I mean, I certainly disagree with not giving women referrals to care that they might seek to, you know, seek to uh, avail themselves of medical services, legal medical services. Right. Uh, but uh, and so I think that's different from, you know, if someone says, well, I really want to off myself and it's a state that doesn't have assisted suicide. Well, OK, I get that. You know, you don't don't do illegal things. But. I, you know, this is a conservative administration in this sense, and this is a priority. And it seems to me that they're probably within their rights promulgating this regulation. I don't like it. I would like to see uh, a Democratic president overturn it. I would like to see a Democratic Congress overturn it more forcefully and more permanently. But uh, I, I don't know that that's uh, certainly that won't happen before uh, before early 2021. Yeah. Well, here's the thing, because you're you are are not an abortion absolutist. No. Um, or a, a, a pro-choice absolutist. Um but I, I mean, wouldn't you agree though, there is a if you have a procedure that uh a a a significant amount number of amount of the population finds morally reprehensible, uh tantamount to murder, uh, or at least morally questionable, uh that that it it's not it is not, um, I guess, and on. Uh, I see what you're. I think I see you know, what to, you're getting it, at. You know, yeah. it, it's not. It's yeah. not. It's not crazy to say. Listen, maybe tax funds shouldn't be used for this. Uh, if someone wants to, you know, fund this privately, uh, yeah. if you want to go out and get the other money to to do this, then okay. And the other thing that this is this is always one of those weird things about you know Planned Parenthood. They, according to their annual report. Uh, Abortion services account for only three point four percent of the services they provide. Um, you know, so they have the the option of look if you could cut that three point four percent, you could get all the money. Uh, they also, uh, but but they don't, and and uh, well, and they also do more. referrals, of course, and so that yeah. was, you know. But I mean, I, I guess in this sense, I'm I am personally 
opposed to abortion under most circumstances. Uh, I, I think it's tragic when it when it has to happen. It's an off. It must be an awful thing to go through, certainly. But I don't feel that I should. I should constrain or I should dictate the choices that women hear about or don't hear about. And I don't think I don't think the state should dictate the choices, the legal choices that women hear about or don't hear about. And now. Sure. But should they should they subsidize that, I guess, is the question. It's one thing to if it were if it were a gag order saying no provider, period, uh, can can refer. Well, I uh, I don't think it's it's, it's it's something. It's not like it costs these organizations a whole lot to make a referral. So it's not like the subs, the Title Ten money goes for that in the first place. This is just basically a financial stick used to get these organizations to stop making referrals, essentially. And so it's it's I think it's anti speech. I think it's anti choice, and that's why I'm against it. Okay. Well, I think that's that's about all I've I've got. For, I got one more this, thing, Jay. Friday, you got more stuff. Well, one okay. more thing, actually. Um, it's actually sort of a personal request, which I don't think I've ever done one of these. So, okay. and yeah, this is obviously a surprise to you, but Jay, you know that uh, I am in the process of applying for promotion to full professor at Northern Kentucky University. Um, yes, and. That, I don't really care about the title. They don't give me a nice mahogany office or anything like that if I get promoted. But basically, given the state of Kentucky's pension system and their support for higher education, this is essentially my one shot at getting a raise greater than the cost to get greater than the inflation rate for the rest of my career. So I'm I'm pretty invested in doing this, right? All right. Um, and so the I'm reason, well, the reason I'm telling you this is, uh, traditionally what academics do is they publish academic stuff, right? And I used to do that. I did a lot of that, but I've mostly moved away from it. Um, and that's the kind of thing that promotion committees tend to care about a lot. And the reason I've done it is so that I can spend more time on this podcast because outside of being in the classroom, this is unquestionably professionally the most I feel important and rewarding thing I've I've ever done in my life. And and I feel like too that the contributions that we make with the politics guys, you know, between the news analysis and the interviews, I think they're so much greater and more important than any article I might write in some journal that, you know, a couple dozen people would read or cite without reading, or some, you know, <laughs> academic book that sits on a dusty shelf, you know, that kind of thing. So I just turned away from that because I wanted to make a difference. And I'd like to think that I am. And I know a lot of you have said that I am. And so here's the personal kind of request part of this is if you agree with me about this and you'd be willing to kind of put that in writing about what you think the value is of the politics guys, that could help me out an awful lot. I mean, especially if you're a former student and extra, especially if you're a former NKU student. In fact, the only person I couldn't accept a letter from would be current NKU students, because that would be a conflict of interest sort of thing and ethically not okay. I don't think so. Right. But if you are, able, agree, and able to help me out on this, you can just put together your thoughts, you know, like an email or ideally in a Word document or PDF, just attach it to an email and send it to me at mike at politicsguys.com. And then I'll include it in my electronic promotion application. And I need to get this all done no later than September 9th. So that's kind of the deadline for that. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So I won't, I <laughs> won't know. But don't wait. Yes. No. Yeah. I, I won't know how all of this turns out until December. I mean, this is just this massive process. I basically have to document and, and kind of 
and go over every aspect of my professional life for over a decade. It's a lot of fun, a lot of paperwork, but I could really use your help. Uh, this, like I said, this has meant so much to me and I, whether I get promoted or not, this was the best decision I ever made in my professional career. And, and I so appreciate being able to do this for, for all of you, for all you folks. And so if you could help me out with that, that would be great. And, uh, that's my last thing. But of course we, JJ, you and I have more because as soon as we're yes. done recording the show, we're doing our special supporters only after show. And this week we're going to be talking about the Democrats chances to take the Senate in 2020. I'll get to talk a little about Hickenlooper. Yay. Um, <laughs> and, and kind of in a related vein, Harry Reid uh, versus Mitch McConnell on ending the filibuster. And yeah. uh, also for supporters at the $5 per month and above level, Will's got this week's Politics Guys quick take. I haven't listened to it yet, but I am looking forward to it. So um, if you're a supporter, that should be in your podcast app by the time you hear this. And of course, there's a bunch of other supporters things. Check them all out at politicsguys.com support or patreon.com slash politicsguys. If you want to get in touch with us, mail at politicsguys.com. There's our Facebook page. Always something going on there. Will lately has been asking all kinds of interesting survey type questions, and there's been a lot of debate on things, a lot of fun. Uh, Facebook.com slash politicsguys page. And we are also on Twitter at politicsguys. And if you don't already subscribe to the show, it would be great if you could. And word of mouth advertising is, of course, the best advertising. And hey, it's free. We like that. So we would appreciate it. The executive producers of the Politics Guys are Bruce Johnson, Wilma Moreno, Benji Fishman, and Andra Masker. Today's show is produced by Jay Carson and Michael Baranowski. We'll be back with a new show on Wednesday. We hope you'll join us.